This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. On behalf of the Graduate Council, the Academic Senate, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you today to the second of three Hitchcock lectures to be given by Professor Michael Coe. The Hitchcock Endowment Fund was established from a bequest made by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock in 1885 to institute a professorship at the University of California for free lectures upon scientific and practical subjects, but not for the advantage of any religious sect nor upon political subjects. Enlarged considerably in 1930 by his daughter, Mrs. Lily Hitchcock Coit, the fund has become one of the most cherished endowments the University of California sustaining and encouraging recognition of the highest distinction in scholarly thought and achievement. Professor Coe is the Charles J. McCurdy Professor of Anthropology Emeritus at Yale University. His work centers around the ethno-history of Mesoamerica and historical archaeology of the Northeastern United States, and his contributions to these fields have significantly influenced our understanding of the evolution of ancient civilizations. Professor Coe has received many awards and honors for his work, including election to the National Academy of Sciences. He has also been a senior fellow with the National Endowment for the Humanities and has served as curator of anthropology at the Peabody Museum of Anthropology, a member of the advisory board of the Plains Indian Museum in Cody, Wyoming, and as a trustee of the Mount Lebanon Shaker Village. Prolific author, Professor Coe has written numerous books on Mayan and Olmec culture, art, and writing systems, as well as several other Mesoamerican themes. The work you heard about yesterday, based on his best-selling book, Breaking the Maya Code, describes the scholarly community's many unsuccessful attempts at decipherment, which finally culminated in a successful breakthrough. This book was heralded by the New York Times as one of the great stories of 20th century scientific discovery. He's also written extensively about the society and culture described in these ancient inscriptions. Another book, The True History of Chocolate, written with Sophie D. Coe, is a fascinating tale focusing on the discovery, manufacture, and use of chocolate in Mesoamerica, its subsequent introduction to Europe, and its present-day use. In his lecture today, entitled More Than a Drink, Chocolate in the Pre-Columbian World, Professor Coe explores the history of chocolate and the cultural practices and beliefs related to this confectionery delight in the ancient cultures of the American continent. Without further delay, I'm pleased to present to you Professor Michael Coe. Good afternoon. Uh, for once, I'm giving a lecture that does have some practical value. Uh, chocolate is a, is a major industry in this country, uh, in Europe, and other parts of the world. Let's see if I can... Closer to the microphone. I should have a mic here, a lapel mic. Can you hear it if I walk out like that? Okay. I'll just talk a little louder. Uh, Chocolate is, uh, of course, I don't know how many chocoholics are in the audience, but chocolate is a major industry. Uh, uh, the largest uh, food industries uh, in the world are great producers of chocolate. 
uh, such as the Nestle Corporation and, of course, uh, Hershey's and Mars in, in this country. But it's got a long, long history that most people don't know about and a very important history related to the uh, ancient peoples of Mesoamerica, Mexico and uh, Central America in pre-Hispanic times. Uh, I never thought that I would ever be writing a book on this subject or standing on a lecture platform talking about chocolate. But uh, my wife, my late wife Sophie, was a, a culinary historian and uh, she was a specialist in the ancient cuisines of Mexico, Central America, the Maya and Aztec in particular, and uh, Peru, the Andes. And uh, in her last year, she got tremendously interested in chocolate because she felt this was a subject that, that really there's so much on and there's so much absolute blarney written about it uh, by so-called uh, uh, food historians who, who write for, you know, the popular magazines like Gourmet and so forth, that she felt something ought to be done to, to correct this. The, the true story is much more interesting than all the guff that you read on, particularly on the internet now. Uh, if you click on some of the major chocolate companies, they've all got a little history section, and it's completely wrong. Uh, so she wanted to tell the true story. She unfortunately never lived to... Uh, see the book more than a couple of chapters uh, into it, and I promised her that I'd finish it uh, for her, so I did. And I had a wonderful time doing it. It really got me into a world that I, I didn't know about and that I should have known about because uh, the people who I study, the Mayas and Aztecs and their predecessors, chocolate was enormously important to these people. Um, not just uh, uh, as a drink, because they drank it rather than ate it up out of a candy wrapper the way we do. Uh, they, dr they drank it all right, but it was uh, uh, money to these people. Uh, the chocolate bean was a unit of currency, of small change. And somebody, uh, in fact, it was uh, my colleague, uh, uh, now re retired, uh, Rene Millen, who, when he was a graduate student, wrote his PhD thesis for Columbia University on uh, cacao and chocolate and called it When Money Grew on Trees. I think it's the best <laughs> title anybody ever got for a PhD thesis. Anyway, so it's a, it's a really interesting story, and uh, I'm going to tell you something about this and what it means for particular Maya archaeology and the understanding of the Aztec people who uh, came later in central Mexico. So if we could have the first slide, I'll tell you something about chocolate that perhaps some of you know, but probably most of you don't know. Uh, could we dim the lights here, please, a bit? The, thank you. Let's see if I can get this in a little better focus. Chocolate comes from a plant called Theobroma cacao, the cacao tree. It was named by uh, the great uh, Swedish, uh, 18th century Swedish botanist uh, Carl Linne, Linnaeus, and uh, he called it Theobroma, the uh, drink of the, of the gods, and cacao because that was the ancient name uh, for this plant and the product in Mexico and Central America, among both the Aztecs and Mayas, and in fact among most peoples of that part of the world. 
the tree itself is a tropical forest tree. It's a small, spindly little tree. It never really amounts to much. It's an understory tree that grows uh, in the, uh, naturally in the wild below much higher trees that shade it. And uh, that's the habitat that it likes. Um, it's pollinated by little, it's got little tiny flowers that are pollinated by midges, which you can barely see. So it needs a kind of a messy environment with a lot of junk lying around on the ground, rotting fruit and things like this, uh, in which midges can, can, can uh, really uh, have a, a, a wonderful life. And they are the ones who pollinate this thing. Uh, as a typical tropical forest tree, uh, many trees are, uh, uh, have this strange form of bearing their flowers and their fruit, not on the ends of the tips of the branches or uh, on the twigs, but rather on the trunk itself. So these little tiny flowers are eventually pollinated and they grow up to be uh, fruit and the fruit pops out from the side of the, the tree here in this uh, plant growing uh, down in Belize. This is a Theobroma cacao tree, a cacao tree, and it produces these pods, which can be like the size of a small football uh, ridged. Uh, there is no way that you would think, if you broke one of those things open, that that's the source of uh, the uh, cacao that produces chocolate, but it is. This happens to be in Bali, a friend of Balinese friend of mine. Uh, uh, cacao is now grown all over the world in the tropics. Uh, wherever there's enough rainfall and the right kind of environment and right rich soils, it is grown commercially. And they grow it in Bali and large parts of Indonesia as well as Africa and other places. So he's broken open this cacao, my friend uh, Budi here, uh, to show you what's inside it. And that doesn't look like chocolate at all, does it? Uh, it's got a, uh, these seeds uh, inside it that are coated with this kind of white, almost translucent, fleshy material that is extraordinarily sweet. It's actually delicious. If you chew this stuff off the seed that's on the inside, it's really wonderful. And that, that is what the, uh, uh, some of the dispersers of cacao in nature love. It's often dispersed by monkeys who uh, come after this stuff and break open, and also parrots, break open the pods and uh, eat the fruit and then of course finally expel the seeds. Uh, they're after this. They won't eat the seeds because the seeds are bitter because they're full of alkaloids. So how do you turn this thing into uh, chocolate? Uh, there it is there. You can see some uh, pods. This is in Tabasco in Mexico, uh, broken open to show this fleshy fruit. These seeds are, uh, are flat. The, the Spaniards call them, uh, when they're dried, they, they dried inside, they look like uh, almonds, and they call them almendras in Spanish. Um, they're, they're really quite distinctive, but the, the, this pulp itself is really quite delicious, and I'm surprised that kind of fruit isn't sold in the markets, because it's, it's sort of like lychees. They're really good to, to eat. So how do they turn this stuff into chocolate? You, uh, they have to, the people who grow cacao, who harvest it, they harvest these pods when they're ripe, break them open and dump the contents out, uh, often into a trough or basket or something like that. And then, because there's so much sugar in uh, that sweet pulp, it starts fermenting in the, this being the tropics, and it builds up quite a temperature 
finally, all that pulp uh, uh, that has fermented uh, runs off as a kind of a wine. And as a matter of fact, you can drink it and get a buzz on. And again, I'm surprised somebody hasn't thought of commercializing this kind of thing. It doesn't, if you ate that seed, it wouldn't taste the least bit like a cow. You wouldn't like it. If it's bitter, you'd want to spit it out. It wouldn't taste at all chocolatey. So what has to happen? Finally, then, once all that stuff has gotten off the seeds, the fermentation takes place, uh, then the seeds have to be dried, the kernels that are inside there, the, what the Spaniards call the almendras. And here they are being sun-dried. Today, this is, done, of course, commercially in, in ovens in the big uh, chocolate companies. But the process that was discovered thousands of years ago in Mesoamerica for processing this is exactly in theory and in almost in practice the same as used today by big companies like Hershey. So here it is, you have to dry these seeds. Then these seeds uh, have to be winnowed and roasted. And uh, they've got a, a sort of a, a thin shell on the outside that you have to take off and the roasting process has to take place. And until all of that takes place, the fermentation, the drying, the, the winnowing and roasting and so forth, there's no chocolate flavor whatsoever in that stuff. It's only when that happens that you have the chocolate flavor. Then in Mesoamerica, in Mexico and Central America, in pre-Hispanic times, they would um, put these seeds, a pile of them, now all processed and roasted, they would place them on a metate, a stone grinding stone, same that you use to grind up uh, corn for, uh, to make into nishtamal, to turn into tortillas. And uh, they would grind the, the, this up. This metate had to be heated though. The, during the grinding process, there has to be heat applied, so uh, they built a fire underneath this thing so that it was really quite hot when they ground it. And this again, the heat uh, uh, is something when they grind today, they still have to do that same thing to get the chocolate flavor. The end product of all of this, uh, of these grinding these seeds and whatnot, is finally turned into a solid uh, paste, which is really pure cacao. It's got a lot of cacao butter in it, and it has all the goodies, all the wonderful flavor. The best quality chocolate uh, contains a lot of this, of these what they call cocoa solids, uh, with the, the uh, um, cocoa butter and all the rest of it in it to make it delicious. And if you want to buy the best quality chocolate, you get that. It's supposed to have 50 per, at least 50% of this stuff in it. The Aztecs then took this, uh, we know a lot about Aztec uh, chocolate preparation. Then they would take that and they would uh, beat it up in water, uh, mix it up with water, and then add various spices. This is one of the spices that they used, another Mesoamerican invention, which is vanilla. Those are vanilla beans. Vanilla is the uh, fermented and dried bean, uh, another complex process of, a, uh, of an orchid, the vanilla orchid which grows again in the tropics, and that was one of the many, many flavorings they used. They could add um, uh, into the drink here, they could add uh, chili pepper, which goes wonderfully with chocolate, actually. If you want something really good, try chili pepper the next time you make chocolate ice cream. Mix up some chili pepper in it. You get a wonderful afterburn to your nice, cool <laughs> chocolate. It's one of these things, synergistic action. It's really marvelous, and I'm surprised Ben and Jerry haven't gotten onto this one. 
so that's uh, basically that's how it's done. So there are the there is the the whole process from beginning to end: fermentation, drying, roasting, winnowing, and grinding. Now, chocolate is a very complicated, chemically a very complicated thing. The, uh, pure chocolate. It's probably got more than 200 different substances in it. Nobody's ever been able to synthesize it. Thank God. Uh, nobody really knows all the things that are in chocolate. It is so complex, uh, incredibly chemically complex. How was it that the peoples of Mexico and Central America hit on making this stuff? To me, it's still a, to, to, to find out that if you do all this stuff, to, to the, the seed that's inside there, it's going to turn out to be chocolate. It's still a mystery to me. Now, in uh, late pre-Hispanic times, on the eve of the Spanish conquest, these were the major chocolate-producing areas of Mexico and Central America, uh, mainly in the, the, the lowlands here. In fact, entirely uh, along the lowlands. Uh, chocolate, uh, the cacao tree cannot grow. Uh, uh, where there's frost. It has to be in a frost-free area, and it has to be uh, with a, an area with a lot of rainfall. And of course, the lowlands of Mesoamerica, southern Veracruz, uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, especially Tabasco in here, down along the coast here in Belize, and especially along the Pacific Coast Plain here is where chocolate was produced. The greatest chocolate that really came from this area here the ancient Aztec Xoconochco province uh, called Soconusco today. It's southeastern Chiapas and just a little bit into Guatemala. That's where the very top quality chocolate came from. Uh, a, a, the variety of cacao trees that grew and still grow there produces the best chocolate of all, what we call criollo chocolate. This has been taken to Venezuela and a few other places and the top chocolate, the really gourmet chocolates of the world, use criollo chocolate from here. It's from here that the Aztecs up here, the Aztec nobility and royalty, got their chocolate. Uh, uh, and it's the same kind of chocolate that eventually was called upon by the ruling, uh, by the, the royal house in Spain when chocolate went to the old world. So that's where chocolate was grown. Now, who did this and when? Uh, who invented this, turning this thing that doesn't look the slightest bit or taste the slightest bit like chocolate into chocolate, this complex process? Uh, there's a lot of controversy about this now. Uh, my wife and I thought we had the answer, and I still think we have it. Uh, Karen Dakin, who's an expert on uh, the language of the Aztecs, Nahuatl, and uh, related languages, claims that uh, the, the people who spoke Nahuatl uh, did this. I think it, uh, uh, that it was the people who spoke a group of languages that are called Mihesokian, which are spoken, uh, which were spoken in this area, still are spoken in this area here. Um, John Justice and Terry Kaufman, two experts on Mihesokian languages, have pointed out that for the Maya, or for the Aztec peoples up here and other peoples of civilized peoples of pre-Hispanic Mesoamerica, uh, the Mihesokian language was a giver of uh, high culture terms, terms like incense and a, a host of other things that related to uh, uh, the, the presence of a, of a very high, sophisticated civilization. 
There are reasons to think that the Olmec people who were in this area here from about 1500 BC to about 400 BC and who created the first civilization of Mesoamerica, that they spoke Mihesokian. I'm convinced that this is true, an ancestral form of Mihesokian rather than Maya or Nahuatl or any of these other languages. If so, uh, well, let's just say Kaufman and uh, Justison uh, felt, and I still believe they're correct, that the word cacao, the ancient word for chocolate, was a loan word out of Mihesokian, that it's of Mihesokian origin. And if so, this suggested to, to us, at any rate, my wife and myself, and again, I think we're right, that the Olmecs were the ones who did this. The Olmecs, of course, are probably well known to you as the producers of these great, these colossal heads. Um, this one is over nine feet high and weighs many, many tons. They created these basalt monuments up to 20 tons. Um, they were incredible sculptors, uh, incredible builders of, of giant earthworks and pyramids. The, beautiful uh, jades were carved by these people. They invented many of the things which the later civilizations uh, drew upon. They were the ancient culture, the way Greece and Rome is the ancient culture for peoples of European descent. The Olmecs were for the Mesoamericans. And as I say, they, their center was down on the Gulf Coast in an area that today still you can find cacao grown all through this river system here in Olmec country. Here is uh, where, this is what we call the Olmec heartland here. And all the colossal heads that are known come from this region uh, here. Uh, I worked there for three years, so I'm an Olmec buff. I really believe that these people were the ancient civilization and that they were the ones who hit upon somehow or another, I don't know how they did it, uh, manufacturing chocolate out of this uh, uh, rather odd plant. Uh, at any rate, regardless of that, we know who the next people were who had chocolate. And the next people, because this is well documented by the Maya themselves, were the lowland Maya. Uh, this is the uh, Maya area, the Yucatan Peninsula, neighboring uh, uh, Guatemala down here, Belize, which some uh, Guatemalan has not put the border here properly, uh, southeastern Mexico uh, here, the state of Chiapas. In this region here, uh, Maya civilization arose. Uh, certainly not long after the time of Christ. And by 250 AD, we enter what we call the classic period of Maya civilization. All the great cities that we know about, such as Tikal, uh, Copan, Palenque, and so forth, they are creations of the classic period. And then it finally, by uh, uh, eight to 900 AD, it began uh, collapsing for reasons that are we're getting a handle on but not entirely sure about. At any rate, by the early in the fifth century, the Mayas had, were starting to talk and write about chocolate. And the evidence for this uh, came up not so many years ago from a site in northeastern Guatemala. In fact, I'll show you exactly where it is. Right up in this region here, called Rio Azul. Uh, dug by a team from uh, 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 from Texas, as a matter of fact, uh, from San Antonio. Uh, this is a National Geographic reconstruction of a great burial 
that was going to take place right next to a, a major Maya pyramid in Rio Azul in the 5th century uh, AD and uh, a burial of one of the great kings of Rio Azul, what we call the Holy King of Rio Azul. Uh, this uh, was an intact tomb when the archaeologists went into it. Many of the tombs of Rio Azul had been looted by the time they got there by uh, people for the antiquities market, but this one was intact, and uh, there it was. In, dug down into the uh, limestone itself uh, right next to the pyramid. And here is the king, the remains of the king. There's his skull there. All of these organic remains probably represent all of his finery, his quetzal feathers, his textiles and whatnot, the wooden things like masks and so forth that had all disappeared because it's a very hot, wet climate. Uh, on the walls are figures of major gods in the Maya pantheon. This happens to be a figure of the sun god of the last creation, who was a gigantic and sinister macaw bird. Those of you who read the Popo Vuh, that's the head of Wuku Kakish himself. But at any rate, let's look down here. In every Maya tomb, classic tomb that we know about of any interest, there is a whole lot of uh, vessels there, pottery vessels and vessels made out of other things that contain the food and drink that were put with this person to take into the other world. And this, all, this is all from the late 5th century. There are cylindrical vessels here. We know that these bowls like this contain tamales, almost certainly, uh, offerings of corn tamales uh, to go with him into the underworld, into Shibalba. Among uh, the vessels uh, that were found in this particular tomb at Rio Azul, tomb 19, uh, was this strange uh, uh, vase and several others. Uh, this is uh, uh, got a uh, this strange thing with a handle on it. It's actually pottery. It's been stuccoed and painted with hieroglyphs. It's actually a screw top. You can screw it and unscrew it. It's sort of like a mason jar. And uh, it's sitting on a pot stand here. Uh, inside this and on several other vessels were sort of residual rings, like the ring around a very dirty and unwashed bathtub. Uh, obviously the remains of some liquid that it had contained. Um, now, the next step is, uh, I want you to look at this hieroglyph right here. Uh, this one, this hieroglyph here we can read, um, it tells us that this is somebody's vessel and it contains a drink. What drink? Well, this is where the epigraphers come in. Um, David Stewart, who uh, is uh, now uh, uh, on the faculty at Harvard, and who was the youngest receiver ever uh, of the MacArthur Genius Prize, and he really is a genius. Um, he looked at that hieroglyph on that, and he cracked it, he deciphered it, the one that I pointed out. And here is the way it is. Um, if you heard my last lecture, you will know that the Maya had a syllabary. Uh, in their writing system. They also had word signs, which we call logographs, and those two things put together make the Maya hieroglyphic writing system. But they could write anything in syllables, just like you can write your name in syllables. Your teacher in school may have told you to pronounce your name in syllables. Well, uh, that's the way the Maya writing system worked. So here is the hieroglyph, uh, his drawing of the hieroglyph that was on that uh, particular screw-top jar in Rio Azul. 
And it says here, ka, that sort of comb sign is ka, it's actually a fish fin. This fish head is another form of it, where this little fin sticking out is also ka, the syllable ka. And uh, these two dots up here, uh, this doesn't have to be here. These two dots will tell you that this is the same syllable repeated twice. It says, do it twice over. And this we know, thanks to my colleague Floyd Lounsbury, linguist at Yale, is to be read as wa. So ka ka wa. Uh, in the Maya system, this is the way they would write it so that the last wa sound, this should be a w, uh, the vowel that goes with it is not pronounced. So this is cacao. They are writing cacao or chocolate on it. They're telling you that there's chocolate inside this. This is another glyph that he deciphered that you get elsewhere on, on other vessels, and it says sakul, uh, which means white uh, maize gruel, atole, atole, still drunk today in Mexico. But this is the one we're concerned about. So they sent, uh, okay, so here's, <laughs> here's how they did it. They submitted, they took those vases and sent them up to the Hershey lab in Pennsylvania, Hershey PA, and lo and behold, uh, they contain, were proved to contain two alkaloids. Uh, one of them is caffeine, uh, you know, which is the active alkaloid in, in, in coffee and a lot of other things. The other one is theobromine. And uh, in the, this particular part of the world, the only plant that really produces these two things, uh, the uh, only plant that is eaten or drunk that produces these two things together, uh, caffeine and theobromine, is the chocolate tree, cacao. So QED, it's chocolate. And uh, so now we know that it was a beautiful case of science coming together with epigraphy and with Maya archaeology to answer this. So here it is again. There's the two dots which tell you that this is to be repeated twice. Cacao. Cacao. And that is taken off uh, another uh, Maya vase. Um, every single uh, cylindrical vase almost from the Maya area, and we have hundreds, perhaps thousands of them now, uh, that have hieroglyphic bands around them, they always tell you up on top that this is a vase that contains a drink, and they'll tell you what the drink is, and the drink is always cacao. And I'll show you this. And there are four known Maya books. Uh, this is a, a, a view of one of them, the uh, very, very, very late almost early colonial, perhaps, in my estimation, uh, Maya manuscript that's in Madrid. It's the Codex of the Madrid Codex, uh, very crude compared to what the classic Maya must have had. But at any rate, this is what we're stuck with. But here is a god seated here, and he's hanging on to a, a, a sort of what looked like branches with cacao pods on them. And there's a Quetzal bird up here flying along who's chewing a cacao pod. And up here, my colleague Floyd Lounsbury at Yale uh, saw that this is ka, this is ka, and here's the wa again. That's cacao, uh, which is, this is, describes these hieroglyphs, describes what's going on in the picture down, down below. So we know what cacao looks like in ancient times. There is where Rio Azul was. Uh, there's where Tikal is. And these are all classic Maya cities, that have, many of which have been excavated. Uh, Washaktun, which was excavated in the 1930s, 
by the Carnegie Institution of Washington uh, turned out to have a number of very important tombs deeply buried in the structures that belonged to the early classic period, 5th and 6th centuries AD. And I just want to show you uh, the an archaeological drawing of one of these tombs at Huachactun, uh, where the dead man is here. This, by the way, in red is a stingray spine. Uh, the ancient Maya were heavily into, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, body piercing. <laughs> Except they pierced the most unfortunate part of their anatomy. The males had to pierce the penis and uh, a male royalty. And that's what that's all about there. But all these vessels here, all these dishes, almost certainly contain corn in one product or, or another, almost certainly tamales usually. And all these ones that I've colored in in brown are lidded vessels that are chocolate vessels. That's how much chocolate was put for the uh, trip into the underworld by an important Maya ruler of Huachactun in the late 5th century. Here are these chocolate pots from this particular tomb here with their lids and so forth. And we, we, we know that they contain important things, uh, almost certainly chocolate in all cases, because we have pictorial Maya vases showing palace scenes in which these pots with the tops are placed next to the Lord as an offering. There is one Maya monument, carved stone monument, from the site of Piedras Negras down on the Usamacinta River, which divides Guatemala from Mexico. It's on the Guatemalan side, uh, the River of Ruins, as it's called. Piedras Negras is a major Maya city, uh, classic Maya. Uh, this is a late classic Maya monument from the 8th century AD, a, 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 a panel. Uh, that was once fixed into a, uh, probably into a palace wall. And it shows a Maya king uh, here in this sort of recessed area. Maya king up here, it's, it's much smashed up, but uh, he's talking to a group of people who are standing here, another group here, and another group down here. The Maya date is over here, which tells you when it happened. His name occurs up here several times. Um, he's talking uh, amongst the people that he's talking to is a delegation from a city upstream, according to this text, um, uh, a site called, a city called Yashchilan. And it's a very important diplomatic meeting going on, apparently at nighttime. And it's a, a feast. Uh, it's actually a party that's being given, and he's talking to all of these people. This is conversation here. Off on this side is the master of ceremonies, whose name is given here, Hasao Chan Kawil, and he is in, uh, an Ak-Ohun, the keeper. He's the royal librarian, the keeper of the holy books, and he's the master of ceremonies, this gent with the sarong. Down here are the participants whose names and titles are given here. One of them is a scribe and an artist. And here is a, that same kind of chocolate pot, and it's referred to in the text up there. So this chocolate is an important thing to get people together. We know that it was uh, for, used that way by the Aztecs during very, very important uh, meetings of the merchants, for instance. They had a chocolate feast in which chocolate was the, the main thing that was imbibed at that point. Uh, it had much more than just a recreational thing, this chocolate drink. It was a, a, a social binder. And in particular among the Maya, we do know in the past, and in colonial times, and even among some modern Maya peoples, it's used to cement wedding uh, negotiations and given during wedding parties. 
Well, this brings us to uh, 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 the, the, one of the largest of all classic Maya sites, uh, Tikal in, central, in, in uh, north central Peten, uh, northern Guatemala. And uh, this particular temple pyramid has a tomb inside it. This is uh, Temple One, and the archaeologists from Penn found a fantastic tomb there uh, back in the 1960s, uh, which they excavated, which turned out to be the tomb of a guy also named Hasao Chang Awil, who was the, the holy king of Tikal, and one of the most important of all Maya rulers. Let's see if I got this right. That's his tomb, and in the tomb you can see all these chocolate pots that are arranged here. Uh, there's, unfortunately, the archaeologists washed out all those vases. <laughs> they didn't think that one ought to not do that and submit and find out what the residues are inside those vessels. Now today they know what to do because uh, there's all kinds of chemistry that can be done on what's in there and trying to identify food remains. But at any rate, this guy did have a whole array of these things, including one in jade. This is from his tomb uh, here, uh, and it says up on the lid in hieroglyphs, it tells you that this is for cacao, for chocolate. So they were keeping the chocolate drink uh, here. This is from another uh, uh, Maya tomb that people think might be the son of Hasao Chan Kawil. Forget what it says up here about his name. We now know what his name is. We can read the hieroglyphs. But all made out of jade plaques, probably affixed to a wooden container inside. Now, did they really drink out of something like this? Uh, if you try to pick up a vase that big and try to drink it, you'd get hot chocolate or cold chocolate all over yourself. It'd be a mess. This isn't the way it worked, and this is not what they were for. Here is a Maya, classic, late classic Maya vase from, um, we don't know what site it's from. It's in the collection of Dumbarton Oaks in Washington. Uh, and it's got a, an inscription up here, secondary ones here. But I want to show you this unrolled, unrolled by an artist that I had working for me. And it shows the king seated here in his palace. This is the palace here with various underlings offering. This guy is offering some small tamales to him. And off here on one side is this figure here who is holding in his hand uh, one of these uh, chocolate-bearing vases, just like the one that you're seeing up here. Uh, and, uh, this is the name of the person who commissioned this particular pot who owned it. With, uh, and he's the son of this person here uh, who uh, comes from this city here, and we don't know where that city is, unfortunately. Here is another unrolled uh, vase, unrolled by my friend Justin Kerr, a photographer in New York and a great Maya scholar uh, who has unrolled thousands of uh, classic Maya vases photographically. And it shows the king up here, a very complicated palace scene with various offerings being brought into him of cloth, bags here. And we're now sure that those sacks contain chocolate beans. Uh, large quantities of chocolate beans, cacao beans, were brought in as tribute and as offerings to important Maya kings. He's also got a couple of captives down here that have been presented to him who are going to have their heads chopped off after lengthy torture. So what did they drink out of? Well, uh, this is from another classic Maya vase. It's down in, the, uh, in Australia, in um, uh, the Australian National Museum. And it shows a dwarf 
who is a very important dwarf. Dwarfs were important to, among the classic Maya in the courts, just as they were in Renaissance Europe. And this uh, very important dwarf is drinking from a cup, from a bowl, that's probably a gourd that's been cut like this. And that's what you really drank out of. So what did you use those tall cylindrical pottery vases for? I'll show you. This is a, another unrolling by Justin Kerr of one of the most beautiful of all classic Maya vases. Uh, it's in the uh, Princeton Art Museum now. It's called the Princeton Vase, late classic Maya. And I can't describe the whole thing to you, but there's a palace scene inside elevation, a very important god of the Maya whose name we don't know. We call him God L, just the letter L attached to him, with five beautiful, lovely ladies uh, here in his court. Uh, and a sacrificial scene going on on this side, a little rabbit writing a Maya codex, a folding screen codex down here. Got his little quill pen in his hand down here. But I want to point out what this lady is doing over here. I'll show you this in drawing. She has one of these cylindrical vases in her hand, and she's pouring this liquid out into another vase uh, here. Now, it's got to be chocolate. And why, why is she doing that? We have an, a, a, a very uh, early post-conquest uh, codex called the Tudela, now in Madrid, from the uh, central Mexican area, uh, describing the life of the Aztecs. And it shows an Aztec woman. This is a, 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 a late 16th century, a very accurate drawing uh, here, showing an Aztec woman pouring this stuff from one vase into another, and we know from the text there that this is chocolate. And why did they do it? To put a head on it. The head, the froth on the top of the chocolate was considered terrific. This is just as though you got your beer, not for the beer, but for the head on top. The, the Aztecs and all the other peoples of Mesoamerica considered, considered the froth the top quality stuff, and they'd spoon it out with, with, with bone spoons or, or spoons made out of turtle shell. Um, this was considered to be the ultimate thing, and then you would drink what was in it down below. Sort of like eating a Peking duck, where you eat the skin first, and then uh, that's the top, the, really the great stuff, and then as an afterthought, you'll eat the rest of the duck. It's the same way with this. You eat the froth first, and then drink the drink afterwards. So that's what they were doing. And they certainly put a froth on it, as you can see from this rolled out, uh, occur rollout here of a classic Maya vase and shows the, the chocolate froth on the top. The underling here kneeling in front of his lord. This is a holy Maya lord. He's got a bunch of tamales with sauce on top of them, corn tamales, and uh, uh, offerings of quetzal feathers and other things being brought into him. This is probably a marriage negotiation going on. Um, the go-between working out the terms of a royal marriage uh, because that's what chocolate was, was used for, we know, throughout the Maya area for a thousand years. The Mayas, so important was it to the Mayas that they had a chocolate god. He doesn't show up very often, but here he is on a, a medallion on an early classic Maya vase at Dumbarton Oaks. And uh, this guy is pointing to one of these uh, uh, chocolate pots, probably had chocolate in it, and he's got cacao pods popping out from all over his body, as though he himself were the trunk of a, uh, of a tree. And he's marked with, with sort of uh, tree and earth markings going all around him. So that's, and that's his name up there. 
Now, the Maya weren't the only ones to be interested in pre-Columbian America in chocolate. Uh, up in central Mexico, the greatest of all cities in the entire pre-Columbian New World was Teotihuacan. Uh, that you go to, it's northeast of Mexico City, uh, uh, still in the Valley of Mexico. Um, it was the largest city in all of pre-Columbian America. This is looking south along the Avenue of the Dead, the Pyramid of the Sun here. Tremendous urban conglomeration. Uh, and we do know that they took chocolate there because there are representations uh, of it. Uh, this was tremendously important, this city, during the early classic period, until about 6 or 650 A.D., when the whole city was destroyed and burned to the ground by uh, hands unknown. But this is from Teotihuacan, a fragment of a, of a carved a vase showing a uh, cylindrical vase, showing a, uh, a blowgunner. Uh, with his blowgun pellet in his hand and there's a cacao tree up here with a quetzal bird sitting up in it and he's going to pop off this quetzal bird but it is a representation of cacao. The Teotihuacan people probably controlled Soconusco, the cacao area along the Pacific coast. They definitely had it. Another pre-Columbian people who had cacao and I think they all had it eventually at one point or another were the Mixtecs in uh, Oaxaca in southern Mexico. The Mixtecs uh, uh, royal uh, uh, families occupied uh, the tops of a whole series of mountains all over the valley of Oaxaca and in the rest of uh, uh, over much of uh, northern Oaxaca and uh, uh, very warlike people and we know a lot about their history because there have been many Mixtec books, folding screen books or codices on um, on, on, on deerskin that have survived uh, until today. This is a detail of one of these Mishtek codices from the post-classic period, uh, probably as late as the 15th century AD, showing an extremely important Mishtek king uh, whose name is Eight, that's the number eight, and that's a deer head. This is eight deer uh, who, who conquered a large part of Mishtek country and whose marriages and conquests are celebrated in uh, several of these uh, manuscripts. This one happens to be in the British Museum. And uh, here is his spouse over here, and they are getting married uh, on this particular date, and uh, they've got a nice frothy uh, jar of chocolate to celebrate that. Another place where you find uh, cacao representations, but no actual cacao, is down in the same country that produces vanilla, where vanilla was probably invented, where the people who discovered how to process a vanilla orchid into a, a, a bean. And this is a site of El Tajin in Veracruz, and a huge, huge city that we barely know at all because it's been very badly excavated, um, unfortunately, but uh, which has a wonderful representation of a cacao tree being worshipped on a step pyramid here. This is probably a mountaintop, and they've got a cacao tree up here uh, with the pods coming off it, and uh, this figure is going up to apparently make an offering to the cacao tree on top. Another place uh, that uh, where you find, and a very important one, where you find representations of cacao is the site of Kakastla. This is uh, uh, really being uncovered right now. Uh, this is up just east of the Valley of Mexico, right on the fringes of uh, the center of the Aztec Empire. 
and it's got wonderful murals in it. It's a palace that has been uncovered by Mexican archaeologists with splendid murals that are not in uh, central Mexican style at all, but rather Maya. It shows that the Maya had intruded up here probably in the 9th century AD and uh, shows uh, uh, Maya rulers in the guise of Maya gods carrying Maya paraphernalia and so forth. But what's really important is the presence here of our friend God El. You saw him uh, on that Princeton vase. Here he is here. He's a god of merchants and he's got his merchant pack in which uh, he's got quetzal feathers and he's got a turtle shell and various other things. There's his hat that he's brought in. And he's looking over here at a cacao tree, a fantastic cacao tree, in which the tiny flowers have been blown up hugely by artistic license here. I believe that the Maya introduced uh, or reintroduced cacao uh, to, in the ninth century, back into the central highlands of Mexico. And it was the knowledge of this that the, when the Aztecs first came into central Mexico, they discovered that they really wanted to drink chocolate. Now, the Aztecs all claimed to have come from up in northwestern Mexico down into the region of central Mexico as conquerors. Uh, they took over the old civilizations of central Mexico, going back to Teotihuacan. But I think they were also influenced by uh, the Maya. They knew about the Maya way to the east here. They never conquered them, but they had them as a super-civilized people, the way we look back on the Greeks as super-civilized people. Um, and they were definitely influenced through this site of Kakashla, I think, uh, right up here in this area. But at any rate, they eventually, uh, by the uh, late 14th and 15th centuries, had created a, a, a mighty empire. And this is the uh, full extent of it, which included Xoconochco, this area. They went down there so that they could have the best source of the best cacao going. The Aztec armies were the most formidable armies that had ever been seen in Mesoamerica. Fighting with terrible weapons, these sword clubs set with obsidian blades, that uh, the Spaniards were terrified of this. They could take a horse and just cut him in half. They were so sharp. Uh, they could actually uh, cut right through chain mail. And the Spaniards produced horrible wounds. And by means of arms like this and their really uh, uh, incredible military organization, they managed to conquer large homes of Mesoamerica, but never the Maya. They had good trading relationships with them because they got important things that they needed from the Maya. This is a kind of recreation of downtown Mexico City as it was on the eve of the Spanish conquest with the great, trying to focus it, the, the great uh, double pyramid here in the center and uh, dedicated to the rain god and to the Aztec war god. Um, it was a, a huge city, Tenochtitlan, and we know a lot about the Aztecs because um, in, uh, once they were conquered, Aztec intellectuals and Franciscan friars, uh, many of whom were very good scholars, began to study Aztec culture and write it up. Uh, and we have a whole, a whole encyclopedia, for instance, written by one Spaniard, Father Sahagun, that is the first piece of ethnography ever done in the world, which gives us a huge amount of knowledge. The Aztecs, of course, uh, uh, told us that, first of all, that they used cacao for money. 
and uh, there's a lot on this. We know, as a matter of fact, from some of our sources, how much so many cacao beans could buy and so forth. So it was valuable not only as a drink, but also as small change and all kinds of transactions. People were paid in chocolate beans. There's some wonderful uh, Aztec ethnography about their attitude towards chocolate. Um, it was a holy drink to them. Uh, it was equated with blood, the blood of sacrificed people. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff about this. They uh, felt that it could only be drunk by the nobility and by, uh, by uh, high-ranking warriors. Uh, it was restricted to that. The ordinary uh, guy in the street could not drink it. It was an elite drink. And it had all kinds of uh, associations. For instance, uh, there's one account of an Aztec, very important Aztec sacrifice in which a young captive, perfect captive, was selected to dance all night as the god. He, he, he acted as the god sometimes for as much as a year. And at the end of this, he had to perform his last dance. Dance, there's this joyous dance, and then the next morning he was sacrificed. Well, uh, sometimes these captives got chicken and, uh, you know, they, they showed signs of terror, uh, so they didn't want to be sacrificed, even though it was considered to be a great honor. And they went right to the uh, heaven of the sun god, but the guy said, no, no uh, include me out, as the late Sam Goldwyn said. Uh, they didn't want any part of it. So what they would do would be to take the sacrificial knife, and here is an actual Aztec sacrificial knife, uh, wash the blood off of it and mix it up with chocolate and then give it to him. Uh, this was called knife-washing chocolate. And he would come out, you know, like a lion after that, forget the fact that he was going to be sacrificed and dance uh, joyously. At least this is what our sources say. <laughs> I think I'd be continuously chicken under those circumstances. At any rate, uh, we know that there were, uh, uh, was a tremendous amount of tribute that came in Let's see if I can focus this. A tremendous, we had the Aztec tribute list, and tremendous amounts of tribute came in from the conquered provinces into uh, the Aztec coffers and into the royal palace. Uh, here is uh, all the tribute from the province of Soconosco, Soconosco, down there in southeastern Mesoamerica. And not surprisingly, includes vast quantities of chocolate. These are bales of chocolate coming in. That's a chocolate bean to label it. Jaguar skins, feathers, beautiful birds, and so forth, uh, came in from this province into the uh, Aztec royal house. Brought in on the backs of uh, traders and uh, brought in on the backs of uh, perhaps serfs who uh, were from that conquered province, bringing it in uh, over hill and dale uh, into Tenochtitlan, the island capital in the middle of that great lake that's now underneath Mexico City. Uh, to present to the ruler. That's the ruler Motacosoma. There's his insignia there, Montezuma. And here they are bringing in all kinds of war costumes and other things uh, into his coffers. The Spaniards tell us something about his storehouses. The uh, Aztec rulers had enormous storehouses of cacao. It's sort of like having Fort Knox underneath your palace because this stuff was money as well as uh, something to drink during important festivities. There's even a description by the famous conqueror uh, Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who wrote the true history of the conquest of Mexico, about the banquet of the Emperor Montecasoma. There's a cutaway view of his palace. 
in which he was supposed to have drunk hundreds of cups of chocolate. Well, that's baloney. Nobody can drink hundreds of cups of chocolate. He drank and ate very sparingly, but all of his people around him uh, um, did this uh, and participated in this. Chocolate was passed at fiestas uh, at the very end. It's the way you'd hand out brandy uh, or uh, port at the end of a fine banquet and perhaps pass the cigars around. Uh, and they also smoked at that point and did pass the equivalent of cigars. So it was not taken lightly. It was an elite drink, always. The Aztec nobility, however, were, had uh, mixed feelings about this. They knew that this was an exotic drink and they were very puritanical in many ways. That's the king, Netzawapili, who was a cousin of Motecasoma and the ruler of the allied city of Texcoco on the other eastern side of the lake. Uh, they knew that this stuff was exotic, that it had come from the lowlands, from people who they considered effete. They were a warrior people who had a savage past, and they thought that this was sissy stuff. It was undermining, there's a lot of mythology about this undermining the strength of the Aztecs. They'd gotten soft when they moved into these civilized areas from where they'd come from. Uh, so they always had these ambivalent feelings about chocolate. Uh, even though occasionally it will show up in their sculpture. What they really uh, thought was the drink for warriors and for, you know, machos and mention was uh, pulque, which they called ocli, a, a native kind of wine that is the sap of the um, inflorescence of the century plant. Uh, here's a century plant here, which they sucked out uh, as it's going to put its shoot up. They cut it and they suck out the juice, and the juice was then fermented to make into a kind of a beer. They call it today pulque, and you can go and have it today in Mexico City in what are called pulquerias. It's really quite good, full of vitamins, but it smells. So the tourist department is trying to wipe it out because uh, the gringos won't like it. Here is pulque in a glass and in a, uh, uh, a gourd bowl. And this is what you're told should be drunk. Now, it is alcoholic, and they also had great prohibitions of, uh, about getting drunk. Uh, Aztec laws were draconian, and the usual punishment for public drunkenness was death, except in the case of old folks like myself. Uh, we could get as drunk as we wanted. Well, then the Spaniards come in and uh, put an end to Mesoamerican civilization, and yet many things did not die out, including chocolate. At first, the Spaniards were horrified by chocolate. They saw these people drinking this, this brown, uh, rather uh, uh, unpleasant-looking stuff. They tried it, and it was bitter to them. They didn't like it at all at first, and then they got to like it, especially the Spanish women who came over eventually and ousted the Indian mistresses that they'd taken. Uh, they began to drink it w with a lot of sweetening in it. The Spaniards brought sugar to the New World. Um, Cortez was one of, uh, had huge sugar plantations, mainly worked by African slaves that they brought over, and this sugar mostly was destined to be put to mix up with the bitter chocolate um, so that they found it uh, palatable. Eventually, this, uh, they added various things to it. I believe that the, 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 the froth-making molinillo today, which you can see in Mexican restaurants and markets and houses, to make that froth on the chocolate was a Spanish introduction. Uh, the old method is to pour it from, on a height from one pot then into the other one to get the froth on it. But at any rate, 
Um, they added various things to it, including all kinds of old world spices like cinnamon and so forth. Um, and then it went back uh, across the ocean to Europe, um, where it went to Spain first, into the Spanish court, as an elite drink always. It traveled almost entirely as an elite drink through Europe. It had to, to be blended in with absolute insane ideas that the Europeans had about medicine and about the body. The, four, the idea of four humors, and it had to be brought into this system, inherited from the Greeks about the balance of the different, these liquids inside the body, these humors, which are absolutely insane uh, and stupid ideas. They were miles behind the Aztecs as far as medicine went. But at any rate, uh, once they had done that, then it was incorporated into something that all the elite of Europe uh, wanted. And it spreads through Europe. This is from a Spanish uh, uh, set of Spanish tiles, showing them making this stuff, frothing it up uh, here to get the froth uh, over here in a, in a chocolatera and whatnot, and drunk again as a very strong drink, pure chocolate with all of these additions. The French got it eventually. This is from a page from Diderot's famous encyclopedia. And uh, if you look at this, the system that's being used here in the 18th century Paris is no different than what the Mesoamericans knew thousands of years before. They heat up the metate here. The, all of this stuff, all of the process is exactly the same. There were no technological advances whatsoever as far as chocolate went until the beginning of the 19th century. This is the way uh, an upper-class woman in, uh, uh, would take this. This is by the Swiss artist uh, Lyotard and shows a morning chocolate being brought into this lady along with the water. And this stuff was strong. It was real chocolate. It was probably about 95% chocolate, what we call cocoa solids. Now everything went along swimmingly like that, or chocolate. It was the real stuff. It was drunk in chocolate houses in England, uh, all over the continent, into Russia and whatnot. Until this guy came along. This is Conrad van Houten, a uh, Dutchman, uh, who was a confectioner, and he invented a method for taking the fat out of chocolate. Um, this fat is cocoa butter, which is delicious. It's wonderful stuff. He got this spoil sport, got rid of it, and the resulting powder, uh, which is cocoa powder that you put into a cup of cocoa, could now be made into a cheap drink for the masses and also turned into solid chocolate bars and uh, confectionery coatings and things of this sort. The chocolate industry really begins with Conrad uh, 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 Van Houten's uh, 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 great discovery. And all chocolate from now on uh, is basically going to be solid chocolate and this weak stuff which we call cocoa. Having uh, taken the, the expensive cocoa butter out of the chocolate, which by the way today the manufacturers extract it and sell it to the pharmaceutical companies and uh, things like that because it, it, has the, uh, it melts at body temperature. So you can use it for cosmetics, lipstick, and things like this, all sorts of uses. They sell that at a lot of money, the, the chocolate companies, and then they put in cheap fat into the uh, chocolate uh, made out of soybeans, uh, a cheap substitute that costs nothing, uh, practically. They also added milk. The Swiss invented this, the chocolate. So milk being cheap in Switzerland, and sugar being relatively cheap, uh, the chocolate bars uh, like this one here, 
uh, turn out to be mostly sugar and, and uh, synthetic fat and uh, uh, milk. Uh, the expensive stuff, the real chocolate, is less than 15% in the typical chocolate bar. Chocolate then being industrialized then spreads all over, brought by the colonial powers all over the world. Uh, today the leading producer of chocolate is Africa, right here, West Africa. And this chocolate is, uh, the African chocolate is what you probably eat if you eat a Hershey bar. Uh, they're not going to put the expensive stuff in that. Uh, they're going to put in uh, this kind of chocolate. Uh, the, most of the commercial manufacturers uh, use that mass chocolate. So chocolate is now for the masses. Uh, Mr. Hershey was a genius, an industrial genius. I would call him the, 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 the Henry Ford of the confectionery and food industry. And uh, he was a wonderful man, actually, uh, a real uh, social pioneer. Hershey, Pennsylvania is an ideal uh, uh, town with, completely built by Mr. Hershey. Every possible amenity that you could imagine, golf courses, theaters, the works, uh, cradle to grave uh, paternalism. And uh, it's an enormous, it's one of the great food companies of the world. But Hershey's chocolate, <laughs> the experts on chocolate who uh, go in for a really top quality chocolate call it junk chocolate because it and Cadbury's and all the rest of them are basically less than 15% real chocolate. They're, it's chocolate flavored fat and sugar is what you're eating when you eat one of these things. Well, <laughs> a lot of nuts in it too. Uh, so the system is no different today than it was in the past. The but it's all industrialized now. Mass production, which Hershey and the Cadbury's in England and the Fry's in England uh, really uh, in invented. So that's what you, you have today. Uh, of course, these are old Hershey's chocolates. Uh, it doesn't bear much relationship to the history of chocolate for its thousands of years. And basically, it has lost all of its social and political uh, and cultural content. And basically, it's lost all of its flavor. <laughs> However, <laughs> there are top quality chocolate producers today. There's a great move now. Even in the Hershey Corporation, I discovered when I talked to a whole bunch of Hershey scientists not so long ago, and Mars people from the Mars Company, they're looking for top quality chocolate now again. They're going to put out a top quality chocolate bar, finally. Um, whether they'll put out the chocolate drink that uh, the ancient Maya knew about and their predecessors, the Olmec and the Aztec, we'll have to see. It costs money. Uh, you can get top quality chocolate bars, ma mainly from, uh, from France today. Uh, I don't own any stock in the Valrona company, but if you want really uh, chocolate that's more than 75% cocoa solids, you have to go to companies like that. This is what the top chefs in uh, New York and San Francisco use uh, when you look on the menu. Uh, they're not using Hershey's chocolate. Uh, and all the top chefs know what good chocolate is. So that's the whole story of this amazing substance. Um, it's got a history, a true history, as my wife said long ago, is much more interesting than all the, the garbage that is written about it. It's a plant that uh, uh, was a very important part of one of the world's greatest civilizations, the pre-Columbian Mesoamerican civilization of Mexico and Central America. So thanks for your attention. I've got some, I'd be glad to answer some questions.
You were showing uh, some sacrifices and somebody yeah. bleeding and all that. You said that was made after the 1521 by Sargon. That, that, that is actually from the Codex Maglia Pecchiano, which is in Florence, uh, in uh, Italy. Uh, uh, it's not from Sahagun. But uh, Sahagun, Sahagun's encyclopedia is in 12 volumes. Uh, it's in Nahuatl and Spanish. The Malia Becchiano was done in, like Sahagun, was done in very early colonial times um, in Mexico City, probably uh, in the late 15th century, late 16th century. I showed that because, first of all, to show the, to talk about the relationship that the Aztecs had between blood and, it looks like what? An allegation. No, that's uh, uh, that's in Nahuatl. Uh, we have Nahuatl poetry about the relationship between cacao and blood. And as a matter of fact, the cacao pod they probably thought of as a heart. Heart sacrifice and blood were very important to, and it's all through Sahagun and through our Nahuatl sources of native Nahuatl people. What is your question? My question is, that's an allegation. That's a statement. No, that's an allegation because you are not quoting the Aztecs, you are quoting Sagun, you are quoting... If you look at my book, I have quoted extensively Aztec poetry on this subject. Uh, has been translated by Miguel Leon Portilla from Nahuatl. Does anybody else have another question? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, if she were to get some Valrona chocolate and mix it with hot water, would you get something the way the Aztecs drank it or the other? Yes. Uh, it would be quite, uh, unless you get the sweetened chocolate, it would be quite bitter. So you'd want to add some spices to it. Some chili pepper, some honey, they used honey. Uh, they had several sweeteners that were not sugar, because sugar is old world. But yes, uh, my wife did this, and uh, God, we got wonderful hot chocolate out of that. Really incredibly good. And it's got a kick to it, which uh, no coke, there's almost practically no, no chocolate, real chocolate in a cup of cocoa, by the way. So if you're worried about what it might do to you, forget it. There's so little in it. Um, but you get real chocolate, the way that lady, for instance, in the, that 18th century painting was drinking it. That stuff was really powerful, the way they drank it in the Spanish court, the way they drank it in the Aztec court. And it's wonderful. What, what about the Nola sauce for chicken and stuff? How okay, that's another uh, excellent question. Mole. Um, there's no evidence whatsoever in Sahagun, the encyclopedia where he gives us the name. Many dishes are described by Father Sahagun, uh, and we have other sources on Aztec cuisine. There's no evidence that they ever put chocolate in cooking. Uh, it's a holy substance. It would, the way I would put it, it would be like using communion wine, you know, uh, uh, in the kitchen. You do, it was like communion wine. It was holy, and uh, so you did. That, that never happened. Uh, mole, uh, which has chocolate in it, uh, there are many stories about its invention, uh, all uh, from the 17th century, uh, and uh, in Puebla, in the city of Puebla, in there's two convents in Puebla which both claim to have uh, where it was invented. Somebody claimed that one of these stories is 
that the bishop was going to come and visit, and they wanted the nuns wanted to give the bishop something really good. So they had this turkey cooking and whatnot, and all the spices were on the shelves, including chocolate and all this other stuff, and the shelf broke and fell into the pot. And there was a chocolate in there. And mole, they tasted it, and it was delicious. So mole was born then. There's other rival stories about it. Uh, Sister uh, uh, Sor Juana de la Cruz, the great uh, Mexican poetess, uh, she, she, she apparently loved mole. Uh, uh, so, but it's 17th century. It's long past the, the conquest. So, so it's, all these books say it's pre-Columbian. It's not. Thank you. Person in the back. Um, yes, uh, Dr. Poe, is there any evidence uh, from the Maya of uh, use of the chocolate in um, shamanism or medicinally or yeah. poses or anything like that? There's no evidence that chocolate was ever used uh, uh, by any of these people for shamanistic reasons, although there's some Aztec poetry that talks about that suggests that uh, uh, some sort of visions came out of it. But nobody's ever been able to identify any kind of a hallucinatory substance in chocolate. And uh, it, I don't know. I think they might have added something like mushrooms to it or something of that sort. Because they did put uh, all kinds of things in it. We knew they took the mushrooms, especially the merchants uh, during their feast took both mushrooms and they also drank chocolate and they may have done them both together and we know that they had visions they see whether they were going to get killed on the road in foreign lands and things like this really quite a description in Sahagun about this but uh, there's we don't know the whole chemistry of chocolate it's just too complicated uh, are there any books that would uh, that, that deal with this sort of subject there's many good books on chocolate, uh, actually, besides the one we wrote. Uh, there's there's a very there's books about the the botany of chocolate, and uh, there's been a lot there's a lot of work there's a, uh, done on chocolate commercially also, uh, a lot of research, mainly centered in uh, State College, Pennsylvania, which is near Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> But they have a whole institute of confectionery science there that's very impressive, and they do a lot of work on this. So I'm going to read one story about the carabines that were hollowed out. Yeah. I couldn't say everything this afternoon. You're right. Because it was money among the Aztecs and among the Maya and whatnot, the, uh, there were Aztec artisans who were very good at falsifying this stuff. And uh, there, there were fake chocolate that they could produce, um, which uh, looked like chocolate but wasn't. They were just sort of uh, uh, empty shells. Uh, the actual fake chocolate like this has been found archaeologically on the south coast of Guatemala. Um, uh, by an archaeologist named Fred Beauvais, a whole pot of these fake sort of wooden cacao beans. And uh, they were very good counterfeiters, the Aztecs, where when the Spaniards introduced coinage, it took them about five minutes to learn how to fake Spanish coins. And uh, it really worried the Spanish crown. But they began probably faking cacao beans, which shows you how valuable they were. Uh, were they a, a, a currency in the sense that the, uh, their value ruled? Currency exceeded their value and started to talk about. That 
uh, it's a very difficult question. Uh, um, the way I would imagine that if you drank a, uh, had a banquet and drank a whole lot of chocolate, it'd be like, you know, lighting your cigar with a $20 bill. Because uh, they, they, it was valuable, I mean, really. I, it, was, it, was not consume, it was consumed very sparingly, actually, by the Aztecs uh, at the ends of banquets. Uh, Probably Bernal Diaz is wrong when he says they were, the emperor was drinking this all through the, the banquet. They drank it at the very end and under very, very controlled conditions. And uh, the, the, the women had to stay away from it. They couldn't drink the stuff. I mean, not many people could actually drink it. So um, it, was, it was like champagne. I mean, it, it had this inflated price onto it and was not something that was thrown around the place. It would be the equivalent to a very expensive brandy or champagne with us, basically. Uh, the Oaxaca chocolate is very good. It's delicious, but it's uh, it's been heavily Hispanicized. That is, it's got sugar in it. That's from uh, uh, the old world. It's got it's got cinnamon in it. Uh, it's good. I mean, the things that are added to it, but. Um, it's not what the the way the Aztecs would have had it, but it's it's pretty strong chocolate. It's good. It's 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 high quality chocolate. There's a lot of cocoa solids in it. It's a whole lot better than a cup of cocoa. I like it <laughs> actually. That's correct. Yeah. The the the. the the, 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 the Spaniards uh, commercialized cacao very early once they got onto it, once they decided they liked it, especially in the 17th uh, and 18th centuries, and it's spread it through the Spanish dominions of the New World, uh, wherever it could grow really well. Uh, Venezuela, for instance, turned out to be a very good place, and they brought the Criollo chocolate from Soconusco in southeastern Mexico. They brought the plants to the coast of Venezuela. Uh, from La Guaira all the way down along that uh, uh, Caribbean coast. And today, top quality chocolate is produced in that, that, that region. Uh, uh, Chocolate El Rey is <laughs> a very, very good chocolate that's used by a lot of chefs, uh, comes from that uh, area. That is, that's a top quality chocolate. It's, the best chocolate is Criollo chocolate. Yes, please. Yeah. For, for cacao. Yeah. Cacao, the cacao tree, the Theobroma cacao, is subject to all kinds of diseases. Uh, the witch's broom, you know, various fungus diseases and so forth that uh, attack it. And uh, this has been a big problem in big commercial uh, uh, cacao plantations. Uh, in Africa and elsewhere. Um, the problem is that um, the people have um, dispensed with the old Mesoamerican way of growing this stuff in a sort of a messy jungle and cut all the forest down and uh, had kind of monoculture of this stuff. Well, in the first place, it doesn't pollinate very well because you've taken away the, uh, the environment that midges like. Midges like a messy tropical forest floor. So once you've done that, 
uh, it's not going to get pollinated the way it ought to. They have problems with, 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 with pollination, with, with getting the cacao uh, fruit to grow. And then uh, it gets much more subject to diseases. It's also, they're using clones and spreading this stuff with clones, so it's, it's genetically too uniform. Um, and this is a disaster. It's a fault of the growers. They asked for it, and they, they, they get it. If they go back to planting it and having it in a tropical forest environment, sort of a artificial, but the same kind of messy, shaded environment, they'd be doing a whole lot better. And this has been pointed out by a number of botanists uh, as, a, as a big problem. Yes? Is well, the, the, the way it grows today in Mesoamerica, Tabasco, if you go to Tabasco around Villahermosa, you see a, a lot of it grown there. And it's shaded. That's very good quality uh, uh, chocolate that's produced there. In pre-Columbian times, they, they, in pre times they, would, they always would have grown it uh, in, uh, in the forest as the way it naturally grows. But they, 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 would, they, would, they would tend it, they would cultivate it, they would transplant it but always with the, the madre, the cacao over it, the, the shade trees and whatnot, to keep this, this kind of jungly environment. Um, that's the way they did it. And they were very, very successful at it. Uh, white chocolate isn't chocolate. Uh, it's a misnomer. As a matter of fact, the, I think the, the US Department of Agriculture is going after people and calling it chocolate. Uh, there's a lot of litigation about that. That is the cocoa butter. That's the fat that they extract. That's largely cocoa butter uh, that they've taken out of the chocolate. And then they add sugar to it, and uh, vanilla maybe, and call it white chocolate. But it's technically not chocolate. It's a byproduct of chocolate. It's good, though. <laughs>